0: Good morning, everybody. If you have a Bible with you or some device to find your place, we're going to eventually read out of the last book in your Bible, Revelation uh, chapter 22. As Pastor Nathan shared, this Advent season, we've been focusing on peace, our need for peace primarily with God, but because with God, with each other and our world. And so we've been working our way through, and we're, we're at the point right where Christmas is almost here, and we're looking to peace uh, from a Christmas yet to come, a peace that will come in the future. Advent often is only associated with Christmas and because Advent simply means waiting or longing or this idea of a coming. And so the mood is of someone expecting something to happen. And so we tend to associate that with the incarnation, the coming of Christ as a babe in, uh, uh, Israel and the celebration of that at Christmas time. But there's another Advent. And this advent is the return of the king. But instead of coming in the humble way in which he came the first time, this one, there'll be no secret, there'll be no hiding, there'll be no uh, quiet. The king will come in glory. And because of that, we get a picture in the book of Revelation about that coming of the king and what he will be coming uh, to do. And the book of Revelation, because it has so many of these incredible sights and sounds and symbols that often we don't understand, we miss the fact that the book of Revelation was written to a people to be encouragement for all generations and all times, to give us a hope as he unveils for us this Christmas yet to come, this Advent yet to come, this arrival of our king. Because he's going to give us a home that will be described primarily by its peace. Where we will be whole and healed. Where all the losses of this life, all the Floyd Gilkies, all the Tim Cates will be made up for. And that our ultimate reward will be Christ himself. A gift of himself. And so if you found your way now to Revelation chapter 22, let me read the opening verses. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, brightest crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its 12 kinds of fruit yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb of will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. May God help us to understand this is his most precious word. The image here of our future home, the image of where we're going, is of a city. Ironically, we started with a garden in Genesis, but we're ending in a metropolis in a very large city. How do you feel about big cities? As some a feel when they think about a big city they think of the crime they think of the dirt they think of uh the violence they, they they think of the crowds the pressing in the 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 tall buildings and it's hard to see the sun others they have more of a romantic idea about the city we go to the city to make a name we go to the city because it's exciting we go to the city because there's a lot going on the city never sleeps and we don't want to either but the truth is, the Bible does not either play the romantic nor uh, the idea of it being hostile. It's very even-handed about the city because the city under the fall, under our sin, has brought both the great things that we love about humanity but also the worst things that we know about humanity. In fact, if we spend time in the Psalms, the way that the Psalms depict the city, that life is missing something without the city, that we're actually blessed by the city. The first city builder in the Bible is Cain. Shortly after he murders his brother, he goes out and creates a city, builds a city of refuge for him to live in for protection against anyone who might want to take revenge. In Genesis 10 and 11, there's another city. This one is a a collection of people of humanity have come together to build a city to their great name and to build a tower to God, not because they wanted to reach God, but they wanted to show God what they could do. Cities can represent our identity for the good and the not so good. Cities can be... a a testament to what man can accomplish, what we think without God. Cities can magnify our sinful drive for self-glorification and self-salvation because they are so great. Jerusalem is a city. It's also... In the Bible, it literally means the city of peace. It was originally designed to be the dwelling place of God and his glory for all the nations. Sometimes we we get a myopic view and think that Jerusalem was just for the Jews. But no, it says that Jerusalem was to be a city of peace for the nations, a blessing to all the peoples. Sadly, that city has been destroyed over and over again and it's filled with strife and division. In the Bible, Jerusalem is a symbol of the future city that we're going to. Described here in chapters 21 and 22 of Revelation. Let me ask you, as you think about beauty and you think about goodness and things that are uh, lovely, do you think of the city? Or do you primarily think of a countryside with a mountain or a sea or some vast wooded area? where there are lots of beautiful trees. We were reading a book that, that Rob Neewarner got us to read as elders a couple of years ago, and it's called Loving the City by Tim Keller. And in the book, he says this about cities. Now, granted, he's a pastor in a large city, so he has a lot of love for the city. He said, if your definition of beauty are plants, then you love the countryside. But if your definition of beauty are people, cities have more of the image of God per square inch than any other place on earth. Do you see what he's, he's juxtaposing. We tend to think of, of creation, plants and, and the animals in the woods as beauty. But if, the chief of creation, if the greatest example of the beauty of creation is the image of God, wherever people are, you have the beauty of God more than the trees and the plants. I'll just give that to you to think about when you think about the city. Even though our earthly cities are broken, and they are, even our own city, They're broken by sin. They're broken by the world that we live in. You and I are to seek their flourishing. We want them to reflect the image of God that's in them, the beauty and the goodness and the truth. You mean, Jonah is a book in the Old Testament. If you haven't read it, it's it's a short read, but it's the first time a prophet of God has been asked or sent would be a better way to say it, because there was no asking, uh, to go to a pagan city for the first time and preach the gospel. And uh, Jonah uh, hears this command from God to go to this pagan group to, com- to preach the gospel, and out of fear that they actually might repent, he goes running the other direction. And because he goes running in the other direction, God becomes the pursuer and pursues after him. And why he's pursuing after him, uh, there's a, a story of a storm and a story of a big fish. But after those stories, where do we find Jonah? But right there in Nineveh, preaching the gospel, and they are repenting and believing. What a great city and great story. But there's another one in the Bible, there's, it's in Jeremiah, he's often called the weeping prophet because Israel's no longer in Israel when he writes. Israel has been totally devastated and conquered by those bloodthirsty, horrible uh, people from Babylon. And instead of saying, y'all can stay in your land and we'll put a governor over here, you can rule yourself, send us some money... They carry them all off in mass, actually a couple of masses, and and they settle them right in the outskirts of the great city of Babylon to live. And the religious leaders in this community were telling the people, hey, look, we're not going to be here long. So if you're single, don't get married. You can marry when we get back home. There'll be somebody for you there. Or if you're married and you haven't had children yet, well, just postpone that don't have children because don't bring them into this mess. We're not going to be here that long. Well, they were all living that way for a while until Jeremiah's letter shows up. And, and in Jeremiah's letter, there's some instructions from God on how to live in exile, how to live on the outskirts of Babylon. And, and he says, don't don't live among yourselves. Live among the Babylonians. In fact, he gives them several instructions. He, he tells them uh, not only to uh, get married and have children and settle down and do trade with Babylon, but he says, I want you to serve the city. Serve the people who killed your relatives. Serve the people that are oppressing you. Serve the people who won't let you go home. Seek its peace and pray for the city. I think this model of living as alien of residents, this idea of exile living is good for the church, good for us, because this is us. We're citizens of one country, but we have residents, permanent residents in another. We're citizens of the city that's in Revelation that Floyd is now seeing. And... we're living here. And there's a way in which we are to live here. And though our primary allegiance is there and our identity and our values, our way of living is there, we live here. We're full participants of our city. We're to be engaged and trade and and have children and be fruitful and, and multiply, not only physically but spiritually, right here, not waiting till the end. We're neither natives nor tourists here. The church of God is his city in the earthly cities of the world. When the world wants to see what God's new city is going to be like... To look at us and how we live together, how we deal with one another, how we face the same problems that everybody else does. Strange relationships, divorces, uh, children who died, loved ones who, who greeted us every a Sunday coming in. How we treat and handle our grief and comfort one another and forgive one another and support one another. That's how the world sees the new city. And then they're going to want to know why. Why do you live that differently? Not perfectly. Nobody's asking for our community to be perfect. That's why we needed Christ. If we could be perfect on our own, we wouldn't have needed a Savior. Well, how can you know for sure? I'm going to take these last two points out of order because I think they're going to fit better this way. How can you know you're in the city? How do you know you're in the city of God? Look at the things that he uses as descriptors in these verses. In verse 1, there's a river of life flowing through that city. In verse 2, there's a tree of life in the middle of Main Street. And in verse 3, there's no curse in the city. And in verse 5, there's no darkness. We'll come back to verse 4 in a moment. Because Jesus himself was nailed to a cross, a tree of death. When someone uh, did something so horrible, the Romans would crucify them and they would do it in public so that everybody would know this is something you can't do. And so when when people think that they were just common thieves sitting next to Jesus, I think that doesn't do justice to who was being crucified These were insurrectionists. These were murderers. These were the worst of criminals. And right there in the middle of them is the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And the reason that is so important that we don't minimize the sin that they were accusing these thieves of is that we can understand better 2 Corinthians 5.21. He who knew no sin... The innocent one became sin. You see, if, as long as we minimize sin, as long as we talk about sin as, as not that big a deal, as long as we, then we don't realize who really died. Jesus, who knew no sin, became a murderer on the cross, a rapist, a child abuser. The worst sins that you can conjure in your minds, whether you've done them or they've been done to you. That's why Jesus climbed the tree of death. So that you and I could have the tree of life. You know, back in the garden where they talk about the tree of life, it's in Genesis and it's in Revelation. You're almost seeing a complete loop. When our first parents got kicked out of the garden for their rebellion against God, he, he put a, a, an angel with a sword, and a sword in the Bible is a is a symbol of justice of God. And so this angel is there with a a sword to, to say, the only way to the tree of life is by justice. The only way for us to eat of the tree and live forever, eternally, is that sin must be paid for. In full, nothing left over. Someone must go by the sword. And when Jesus climbed the tree of the cross... He said bury the sword into me. Bury it in me so it you don't have to take it. So by faith I did it for you in your place. And so if you will trust your sins to me then you can go free. There's a verse that I find Incredibly encouraging and incredibly hard to hear. It's Romans 5, 6. Romans 5, 6 says, for a while we were what? Weak. We don't like that word. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. What an insult. You know, when I think of myself, I don't think of myself as godly, but I certainly don't think of myself as ungodly. But the only one that Christ has died for was the ungodly. He didn't die for any godly people because there aren't any. Do you see that the gospel message is that we have to own our ungodliness, our need for him. Because if we can do that, then we can have the life, because he took the justice for our sin. The encouraging part of that verse is, uh, that passage, if you just go two verses later, he'll say that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still the ungodly, he died. Another way to think of that is that back in the garden, back in the garden, It says that in when God made Adam and Eve, that they were what? Naked and unashamed. That is, they were fully known and loved. But after their rebellion, they could only settle for love. Because it says then they were naked and ashamed. And so they hid themselves they hid themselves from God. That's the reason they got behind the bushes and he had to say, where are you? And that's why they had to put fig leaves on because they were ashamed that they were naked and visible to the other. But also they were using excuses when God showed up and said, what have you done? And he said, it's that woman you gave me. And she says, that serpent you put in the garden. And, and that's just another way of hiding. And and so the, the, the thought here is that we we're never going to appreciate the grace until we can appreciate our need for grace. And it has to be personal. It can't be, I'm part of the human race and all humans are sinners. That's a struggle, isn't it? Yeah, I'm part of the ungodly, but everybody's ungodly. It's never that I'm ungodly. And here's how I've been ungodly. But also in this beautiful picture, this description of heaven, he says, because Jesus became a curse for us in the garden because of man's sin, he brought a curse upon himself. Right after Adam and Eve sinned, God cursed the serpent. He cursed the woman. He cursed the man and he cursed the earth. But in the new heavens and the new earth, this new city that he has, there'll be no curse because all of the curse was upon Christ on the cross. The proof that that worked is the resurrection. Whenever the church wanted to prove that what Jesus did worked, they didn't talk about apologetics. They didn't, they didn't break out their proofs. They just said 500 people saw Jesus alive after he was dead. Because on the cross, Jesus said, I thirst. We don't thirst in the new city. There's going to be a river that runs right through center city. On the cross, he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was willing to be separated from his father so that we might be joined to him forever. When we sing praise God from whom all blessings flow, this is what we're talking about. All the great things that we have received and will receive, they flow like a river. And because on the cross he cried out in darkness... In the new city, there will be no more darkness ever. There was darkness because there was no God there. And now that God will be with us forever, we need no sun, moon, or stars. Light will be everywhere because God will be with us, Emmanuel. How do you know if you're in? Do you trust him? Do you trust what he has done as your personal substitute? And if he has, then this Christmas, you know you're part of the city. The city of God. And because of that, you can experience it here and now. Right here. Notice in the Sermon on Mount, when when Jesus talks about that city, he uses the presence tense. He says, you are a city on a hill. And when Paul talks about the city that we're going to, he says your citizenship is in heaven, is present tense. Because he wants us to understand even though it's something in the future that we're going to, it is something that we can experience here. Our citizenship here. And in one way we can do that is that we can resist the brokenness and the dehumanizing dynamics of our cities. There's things about our cities, this idea of comparing ourselves to one another. If you make five figures, you compare yourself to people with six figures and it just goes on and on and on. And, and that treadmill is what creates so much stress. We live in an, a stressful age, but you, we live in a, a stressful geographic area. So much so that this past fall, two children, two teenagers took their own life. Can you imagine a, a 13-year-old girl, girl feeling so bad about her life that the only way she thought she could get out was to go on the internet and figure out how to hang herself. The dynamics here are destructive and they rob us of our humanity. There's so many others. The inequity that we live in, the demonizing of those who, are, who, are, who have a different point of view or a different perspective. Rather than, than having a conversation, we just make them the enemy. Our text raises that issue when it begins to talk about making a name for yourself in verse 4, where it says, they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. Your name is your identity, who you are. And when we get to heaven, you're not going to have to worry about your earthly name. You'll have his name. Because he bought you, you are his, you are free. The last application, and I think this is where we, we kind of move out of here into the world. Back in chapter 21, and it talks about the city, it says that in that city, God is going to wipe away every tear. All of the grieving, all the losses, all the suffering, all the pain will be made up for in the way that uh, Gan- uh, Gandalf and little Sam talked about it in the Lord of the Rings, the death will work backwards." Well, how do we mimic that here? You and I go into our own neighborhoods and into our city, and we wipe away the tears that we see. There's so many, so much brokenness in our church, in our community, in our city. And we mimic what is coming by engaging in people's lives to the level where we can bring comfort and help. And this includes the pain of not knowing God. Sometimes we don't realize that that people who don't know God, how much pain there is trying to make up for the losses on their own, trying to be their own self-saviors all failing, and all brokenness. And so this Christmas, we have these three big ideas. The Christmas past, what Christ has done for us on the cross to bring us peace with God. This Christmas present, that we can experience peace here and now because we have peace with God, and that we long for where we're going, of a Christmas yet to come, of a city that we get to experience here and now and taste, but will one day arrive and we long for. May that be true for you as you celebrate Christmas in just a few days. We invite you back to our Christmas Eve services if you're in town. Bring your friends and your family as we celebrate the coming of our Savior. So let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for these Beautiful pictures that as we've walked through our own brokenness, the brokenness of our family, the brokenness of our community, the brokenness of our city, our neighborhoods. This particular picture of a city where there's no curse and darkness. Where there's a river of life and a tree of life for us for all eternity is meant to encourage us here and now in the midst of our brokenness to find comfort, encouragement, and joy, that you love us that much, that we're, you have fully known us and yet you still have sent your Son to die for us, something that we would not do for anyone else, not if we fully knew. We thank you for your mercy and your grace to us and we ask that we might this Christmas first preach it to ourselves, but also to our families and friends and to our neighbors and to our, our community.